Welcome to another episode of Kansas City Symphony's podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, Education Manager. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. So maybe you come to the symphony all the time and you're a fan, or maybe you're someone who just comes occasionally, or maybe you're someone who's never been to a live orchestra performance. Uh, I know when I met my wife, she'd never been to a live orchestra performance. Uh, and now she comes all the time. So we all know somebody who's never been, and there can be many reasons why. Either they think it might be too expensive, or they're busy with family. Uh, maybe they just have a fear of good music. Some some people have that fear. Uh, but probably, if you've never been, it's because you're just not quite sure what's expected as an audience member and what to expect from the experience, and maybe you're afraid you'll do something wrong and you'll just stand out. So we are here today to demystify the concert experience for you and hopefully make you feel uh, more eager and more comfortable to come visit us when we're finally allowed to do concerts again. So the goal here today is to put your mind at ease and show you that coming to a symphony concert can be stress-free, can be fun, and even inspiring. And, you, you know, I moved into this neighborhood I live in a few years ago. And when I first moved in, we were talking to our new neighbors and finding out who everybody was and what they do. And, you know, I told them I work for the symphony. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. I've never been to the symphony is what I get from most of them. And a lot of them will say, yeah, my, my son or daughter goes with their school, but I've never been. That building downtown is beautiful, but it's a, it's a little intimidating um, and I think there are a lot of reasons that people don't want to come. And a lot of them happen even before they get to the idea of what the symphony concert actually is. There are several questions we get. One is, what do I wear? Which is a really big concern for a lot of people. And it really is not a big deal. You don't have to dress in your fanciest clothes to come to a concert, even though the orchestra is dressed in... <laughs> What did you call it, Mike? 19th century? It's, uh, yeah, we, you know, we wear tails a lot of evenings. And yeah, we kind of look like uh, footmen from, from the 19th century. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you have to come in tuxedos and sequined gowns and your finest jewelry, right? You come in whatever you're comfortable in. And, you know, a concert experience should be about you just coming and being comfortable and enjoying music. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's one thing people are worried about. Some people, of course, are worried that the tickets are going to be too expensive if they're buying them at the door. And, you know, here at the Kansas City Symphony, and actually all orchestras have so many good um, deals on ticket prices. You can get group prices, you can get student tickets. There are always seats that are obviously less expensive than others. It's no, it's really no different than going to see like a baseball game. Mm -hmm. You're going to have some tickets, sure, behind home plate that are $248 or something. But um, if you sit, you know, way up in the outfield, maybe it's only 10 or 12 bucks. And it's the exact same thing with an orchestra. There's a wide price range and you can really sit anywhere, especially in our hall, in Hellsberg Hall in the Kauffman Center. There's really not a bad seat. No, you're right. I mean, you know, you talk about going to sporting events and you sit in the nosebleed section. In the in Hellsberg Hall, the nosebleed, the nosebleed section is like, how far do they say there's no there's no seat in the hall that's more than a certain distance from the stage. Do you, does anyone know that number? I think it's 10 feet or two <laughs> miles. I don't remember which one it is. No. Oh, wow. I think it's like, I think it's like a... It's is not it, far. I think it's like 100 it's feet really or something far. like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, it's really, and quite it's honestly, really quite honestly, uh, depending on what kind of concert we're doing, things sound better the higher you get. Most people that are that come to orchestra concerts all the time, they know that. Like the best seats, a lot of times, are up high where you really get a, a the the natural balance of the orchestra and the natural blend. Or if I have to pick a seat for myself, I always sit at at the lowest place. I will sit is on the fifth level because you could hear really well, but you can also see everything that's happening. Um, it, it for me, it's the best place to sit. And you don't yeah. have to worry about foul balls. <laughs> Just foul notes. You're not going to get hit by any. <laughs> there you go. You're not going to get hit by anything in an orchestra concert. We hope. I hope. Well, not. then of course you get there and 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 you don't know how the concert's going to start and. Um, you know, the first thing that sometimes happens is someone might come out and, and say a few quick words about the sponsors for the evening or maybe something that's coming up at the symphony. But then, of course, uh, the concertmaster, who is the first chair, first violinist, comes out to tune. And you might be a little confused with what's going on there, but everyone's just simply tuning their instruments before we start. Mike, you, you had some story I remember you were telling me a while back about your yeah, wife, so I, I think, and so before uh, before we were married, like I said at the top of the show, my wife had never been to an orchestra concert, and she came the first few times, and then she she asked me this question. She says, "What what is the song you all play at the beginning of each concert?" And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, and like we don't play the same thing at the beginning of every concert. I thought, oh, well, you know, the first weekend we played the national anthem uh, before each concert, and she's like, no, 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 not that. I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I can't figure out what she's talking about. And then I realize she's talking about the tuning note, the tuning <laughs> note. So at the beginning of every concert, you'll hear us play the note A. And then the wind section will play the note A. And the other sections of the orchestra, the string sections, will will play it as well. And what that is, is we're, we're tuning our instruments to make sure that when we start, we're all in tune with each other. And it's especially important for the strings because they need all four of their strings to be in tune. Uh, and for wind players, it's just kind of a reference. We can't really adjust our instruments in exactly the same way as the strings, but we have a little bit of flexibility. For a moment there, I thought you were going to say because string players can't play in tune or they need more help playing in tune and wind players are experts at it. Well, I thought you were going there well, since you're well, a Well, that's player. true, actually, and I'm glad you mentioned it, but I, yes, <laughs> Well, as true. a string player, I disagree. But going on, <laughs> anyway... Once we tune, of course, we will launch into the first piece, and then it becomes a question. The next question that everyone has is, when do I clap? And of course, there's all these unwritten rules in the orchestra world. Um, when you go to a rock concert or something, you clap all the time. After every single tune, you go nuts. With an orchestra, a lot of times you will uh, wait until an entire piece is over. So if a piece has more than one movement, then you are supposed to wait until the very end of the piece. And it could be anywhere from 20 minutes to sometimes over an hour. Some of Mahler's and uh, Mahler's symphonies and Bruckner's symphonies are over an hour. So it's that, that, do I really have to sit here and not make a sound for that long? And, you know, it's kind of interesting because the whole clapping thing just kind of recently started uh, a little over 100 years ago, this rule about no clapping in between the movements. Um, in Mozart and Haydn's time, people always clapped in between the movements. They would sometimes yell encore um, after a movement was completed, especially if it was the premiere of a, of a new symphony or something, and they loved the second movement. They would a lot of times literally clap and yell encore, and the orchestra would play that movement again before they'd move on to the other movements. So this is kind of a tradition that's really started in the last 
100, 150 years or so. So, you know, guys, actually, this idea of whether or not you're supposed to clap in between movements, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but I kind of get the impression right now at this time that we're in now that the the disagreement comes more from audience members than it does from orchestras, meaning that I don't necessarily think that like the musicians in the orchestra or the conductor necessarily care if you clap between inner movements. Sometimes, you know, will especially like in a slow movement that ends really softly or, you know, has there's, you know, you want it to kind of taper away and then go right into the next movement. You don't want to break in there. But I think for the most part, it's become this kind of topic of discussion amongst audience members. There are some audience members who are, you know, purists, and they think that, you know, you absolutely cannot clap in between movements. And then there are some who just don't care. And that's kind of like, that's where I am. You know, if it if I'm moved to and it feels appropriate, I'm going to clap because I want to show you know, my appreciation and how it made me feel. Indeed. You know, I mean, there, if you think about it, there are some movements uh, in the repertoire that it almost feels silly not to clap after they're done because the ending is so incredibly triumphant. I'm thinking of like Brahms' Violin Concerto, the first movement, or the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, first movement is the same way. and Or another one, actually, Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 6, the third movement, a march. And that one in particular, because the whole rest of that piece is so dark and full of agony. And it is like the one really triumphant, happy moment of the entire piece. And it's almost, I, I actually have never been to a live performance of that piece, either conducting it or playing it or listening to it, where the audience didn't erupt in applause after that third movement, even though there's still a whole nother movement to go. So, I mean, there are certain times where I think it makes a lot of sense to clap after a movement that's not the last movement of the piece. Yeah, I think actually one of the most gratifying things for us musicians on stage is that we did something so exciting, so wonderful, so uh, joyous uh, that you can't help but clap. And so it's hardly offensive. It's, It's wonderful. You know, the whole point of applauding in the first place is to show your appreciation for something. And I say that if we did something that makes you want to put your hands together for us, go for it. Um, there are those times it's, you know, kind of a spiritual moment, and we hope maybe we'll just have a moment of silence. And I think a really good rule of thumb for knowing if you're in one of those moments is usually you'll see the conductor won't lower their arms at the end of a movement uh, if if we're looking for a little mo- moment of silence. Uh, and similarly, you won't see the musicians uh, put down their instruments perhaps right away. And if that's happening and everyone around you is quiet, you know, just just give it a second. Absolutely. I think that's so important in just, you know, music, especially great orchestral music, everyone out there listening to it in the audience is having a different emotional reaction. And just those couple extra seconds after a movement is over, especially a really beautiful moment, just allowing everyone to allow that to sink in for a few moments, what they just heard is always really helpful. And the more concerts you go to and the more experiences you have like that, I'm sure you'll also start feeling that and thinking, wow, that was really incredible. I just want to reflect on that for a moment. So that's, that's a, you, you nailed it, Mike. That's a good rule of thumb is to watch the conductor, watch the musicians on stage kind of feed off their body language and to determine the proper response, so to say. But the point of all this is there is no right or wrong answer. We had a young gentleman uh, at one of our earlier classical concerts this this 
season that was sitting in the front row. And he was so into it. I could see him from up high where I was sitting. He was so into Emmanuel Axe's piano concerto, uh, or uh, Beethoven's piano concerto that Emmanuel Axe was playing, and then the Bartok concerto for orchestra. And literally the second we finished the last note of the Bartok concerto for orchestra, he jumped to his feet and was like, bravissimo! And while we might have been a little bit surprised by it, everyone in the orchestra on stage, uh, Michael Stern, who was conducting at the time, it might have surprised us a little bit, but we all were like, yes, that's what Bartok and Schroeder for Orchestra, sh that should be your response. It's an incredible piece. So I think, you know, there's really no right or wrong answer. It should be basically what you feel. And I think maybe that's kind of a, a message that we want to, to convey to the audience is there really is no right or wrong. So, you know, if, if you don't want to clap in between the movements, don't do it. Like, absolutely, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you do, go for it. And nobody's going to judge you for it. Uh, you know, we, we're excited. We just we just want to hear your appreciation. And uh, we're happy that you like what we're doing. So I mentioned a minute ago, uh, watching the conductor's arms. And another one of the uh, really common questions that I get from people who are coming to the symphony uh, for the first time, or maybe not the first time, but haven't been often, what is the conductor really doing up there oh i feel like and this we, is a joke we, waiting to happen we happen to have a conductor here and it oh is boy. a joke waiting to happen but i'm going to restrain myself so that jason <laughs> can maybe talk for just a minute about oh boy what he thinks he does and then i'll tell you what he actually does oh boy <laughs> this is definitely a loaded question thank you mike and i get that question actually a lot too does the orchestra really need you and the answer to that question of course is yes and no because an orchestra as great as the Kansas City Symphony, 99.999% of the time, really does not need a conductor, especially in the context of a performance. Everyone's using their ears, and they're using visual cues from their um, principal players, their leaders, and everyone's communicating. And so once the tempo's established uh, to a new area of music, really, they don't really need a conductor. Um, if it's a younger band or orchestra or choir, then obviously, yes, it helps a lot. But everyone's internal sense of rhythm is so good that you really don't need it. Where the conductor really comes in handy is in the rehearsal process. Um, it's Actually, it's a lot like a head coach. All the work is done in practice. And once you get to the concert or the game itself, it's really in the player's hands. So there are moments of transitions, uh, of tempo changes, et cetera, where I can really help. Um, but one of the best things I can do is to actually stay out of the way sometimes once something is established because I can I can actually hurt what's going on with the great ensemble playing of the orchestra. But of course, you're shaping, you're shaping phrases, and there's a lot of spontaneity to music making too. And that can really come from the conductor, moments of inspiration and spontaneity that can really make a performance extra special. So the answer to the question is, Yes, you need a conductor, especially for rehearsals, because it makes everything a lot more efficient. But when you're in the context of the performance, not quite as much. Like I said, it's mostly in the player's hands by that point. And there are many times where I really get to just sit back and barely conduct and enjoy what my great colleagues are doing on stage. All right, Mike, let him have it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that all sounds very interesting. I should look up once in a while. Maybe I'd see something that uh, would be helpful. Oh. But, uh... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Well, 
you know, as young players, uh, one of the, one of the things that we always get screamed at by conductors is that we're not listening because it's you know it's not a natural habit to we're worried about the music in front of us and playing our instrument and we really have to be trained to to watch what the conductor is doing, um, and not only that but to be able to watch our music and the conductor at the same time. So, in fact, even when I'm you know, focused on my music, the conductor's movements are always in my peripheral vision. And at this point in my uh, life, I'm uh, well healed enough that uh, I'm too afraid for that not to be the case. <laughs> so another question I think that comes up often is, and maybe people don't even, it, it's kind of unspoken, um, is what if I don't know anything about classical music? Like, what could I possibly get out of a symphony concert? Or why would I go if I don't know anything about what you guys do? And it's a good question, right? It's a great question. And actually, there are lots of things you can do before you even come. If you know what's going to be on the program, you can listen to the music in advance on Spotify or YouTube or iTunes. Um, but also, once you get there in your program, of course, there are some program notes that someone has taken the time to, to write about the, the history of the piece and the composer and maybe the what influenced them or the story behind the music. And I think if there is a specific story or a specific thing that was inspiring them to write it, knowing that in advance as you're listening, I think always helps. We have, we have At the Kansas City Symphony, we also have concert comments, which happen an hour before the performance um, for our classical series. And people can come an hour before and... Usually I'm the host of it, and we have whoever's on the podium, whoever's conducting uh, the guest artists for that week will join us, and we'll talk about a little inside baseball about the, the pieces that people are about to hear. That's another really great way to familiarize yourself so that as you're listening, you kind of know what to expect, I think. I think that's a great point, too. So, I mean, I have, I'm a musician. I have a master's degree in music. I've played with different orchestras. Like I feel pretty like, like I know what's going on. And I still will always listen to the piece that's being performed on the concert before the concert, just because I feel like it helps prepare me for what I'm listening for, you know, and just being familiar with something I think helps you listen better and have a more personal connection to what it is you're listening to. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think, you know, if you go to an art museum, it's sort of the same thing, especially if you go to the contemporary section of an art museum. When you look at a painting the first time, you might not have any idea what was on the artist's mind when they painted it or sculpted it. Um, and a lot of times it's not till the second or third time with any work of art that we really start to under, start to understand it. So like you said, knowing more about it in advance before you even hear the piece live, I think always helps. But I think there's kind of a natural tendency for adults, especially, to hmm. be afraid of new things or, or of trying new things. I mean, we we like what we like. And I'm certainly guilty of that. I mean, I order the same thing at a restaurant every time I go. I like what I like. I'm not going to try anything new. There's no reason because I know that I like that, right? Um, but I think like if we could take a cue from our kids... And I bring this up because I get to work on these concerts with kids all the time. You know, we bring these children into these concerts and they have kind of no preconceived idea about what a symphony concert should be. And we, you know, they come in completely open-minded um, and they sit down and we can play anything we want for them. And they 
absorb it and they take it in a in a way that it it's hard for adults to do that. I mean, we have to consciously make ourselves try new things. And this is absolutely one of those new things that that you should try. I I really think and I'm glad you mentioned food uh <laughs> because in a way when when I'm talking about this with people, I I liken it to people who think they might like wine but don't know anything about wine. And I'm a little like that. I don't know anything about wine, but I do I do like it. And you can hand me a glass of wine and say, oh, you might enjoy this. It has notes of honey and old sneakers. And I'll say, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> that sounds exciting. I'd love to try that. And, and, you know, music is a little bit that way, too. You don't have to know everything about it to just start experiencing it and listening to it. And you'll find what you like and you know, what you like is what you like. And that's the only thing that matters, really. Yeah. And, and you know, orchestral music takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of focus listening, whether it's the first time you've heard a piece or it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and you've heard it a dozen times before you come to the concert hall to hear it. And the one thing that I think separates orchestral music from going to a rock concert or hearing a pop tune on the radio, first of all, the music is a lot longer not a three or four minute tune and then it's over and you're on to the next thing. Um, but it really does take more active listening. And I think that that brings us to another thing that people might worry about the first time they come to hear an orchestra concert is I don't know how to act. It's not just a matter of clapping in between the movements, but um, why can't I you know, have some popcorn while I'm watching? Or why can't I uh, open a piece of candy? Or, you know, sometimes people will like, glare at you if you go to unwrap wrap a cough drop or something. Or why can't I Snapchat during <laughs> during the yeah. concert? I mean, you know, like I, in this yeah. digital age, like, you know, I want to share this with my friends. I'm at the symphony, but that's kind of a no-no too. True story. It actually happened, uh, I think it was just a few months ago, or maybe it was last season. I can't remember. We finished a movement of a piano concerto and we were just talking about, you know, whether or not to clap in between the movements. So after this uh, movement, no one clapped could hear sounds in the hall perfectly. And we heard this faint echo of what the orchestra and the soloist had just played. And it turned out somebody was Snapchatting the music they had just heard and I guess accidentally mm. pushed play or something. So well, because when you Snapchat, I feel like it like replays automatically once you, you oh, do I it see. and you're finished with it and it replays. And yes, and I will tell you guys, um, that woman was mortified. But... I, I'm going to back up a minute, though. She, You know what? She just didn't know. She didn't understand that right. technology, and she just didn't know. And I will. I know the story because I, I work in the office, and it was her first time coming to a symphony. And she just didn't know any better, and she felt awful and came backstage at the break because she wanted to apologize to the conductor and to the oh, I production. Oh, no, I'm glad you brought this story up because she really, she felt terrible. And what I was so proud of working where we work is that instead of, you know, kind of berating her or, you know, like lecturing her about what it was, our director of operations pulled her aside and was just like, you know what, it happens. I appreciate you saying this, but there's no reason to apologize. It is not a big deal. In fact, like, we want you to come back. Like, please don't make this be your one and only experience with the symphony. Like, please come back and and have, you know, try it again with us. Because I, I would hate for that to be her only experience with the orchestra. But you are right. It did happen. Yeah. Don't Snapchat in the, in, the, in the hall. Yeah, 
As a matter of fact, you know, we ask you to turn off your cell phones before the concert starts anyway, not just to put them on silent, but I always think it's safest to just turn them off. And that's for a couple reasons. Number one, you're not supposed to record the concert. Um, you know, you go to rock concerts, pop concerts, and it always bothers me when every single person has their phone out and they're recording. It's like live in the moment, enjoy the live musical performance that you're you're experiencing. We can all go listen to these tunes on whatever device we have at home. You're at a concert specifically so that you can have a live experience. And that's one of the great things about watching an orchestral performance is everyone is there together, experiencing this together, and it's something you can't recreate with a recording. So do turn off your cell phones and just live in the moment. And then you don't have to worry about, oh, am I am I allowed to record this? Am I not allowed to record it? Can I Snapchat it? Can I put it on Instagram? Whatever. Just enjoy the live experience. Well, no matter if it's your first time coming to the symphony or you are someone that comes all the time, one of the things we love to do at the Kansas City Symphony is feature outstanding living composers. And as I mentioned before, sometimes um, when you first hear a brand new piece of music that you've never experienced before, it can be a little tricky to kind of figure it out. But I think there are certain composers that are always very accessible. Their music is the very first time I hear it, I'm excited. I love it. And one composer that definitely comes to mind is Anna Klein, the great British composer. We were supposed to play uh, her piece, This Midnight Hour, um, which is based on a couple poems about the nighttime. We were supposed to play it last week here at the symphony. We've also played uh, Masquerade. We did that on a classic song, Corked. I, I consider it sort of like an overture on a sugar high. I think it's one of the great concert openers that's been written in the 21st century. And we also played her beautiful piece, Within Her Arms, um, for string orchestra. We played that last season, a piece uh, that was dedicated to her mom. And I, I just love her music. I'm so glad that we're playing a lot of it at the symphony. And we did um, ask her some of our questions that we've been asking many of our guests about if she were to walk into a bar, what would she be drinking? Um, and where would she do that? What kind of bar would she be at? Well, uh, I have to say before I reveal her favorite drink that, uh, Anna Klein is a relatively new composer to me. I, uh, I haven't played any of her music myself that I can recall. I, I wasn't on that Classics on Courts concert you were talking about, but I started listening to her music this week and I was just blown away by it. It's so uh, incredibly colorful and evocative uh, in, a, in a very special way. And I think her orchestration is just amazing. And a lot of it reminds me a little bit of, of Stravinsky in a way. Um, mm. And it's just so descriptive and I think it references familiar styles in a really clever way that's not um, cliche in any way. It's just, it's beautiful music. So um, that being said, I'm even more excited to know what she drinks. And uh, <laughs> I know Jason is going to be excited about this. This is something that's Ooh. very deeply important to us in the, um, you know, in the ethos of Beethoven walks into a bar. Uh, her favorite drink is the Manhattan. Yes, that's my favorite drink. There you go. I love a good Manhattan. That's definitely my go-to drink. So I'm already BFFs with Anna Klein. And we asked Anna also uh, where her favorite spot to drink in Manhattan is. And it is a, bur uh, a bar called Pearl, spelled P-U-R-L, in London. So nice. if you're ever in London and you want a Manhattan, 
that's the place to go. If you're in Manhattan and you want a London, well, then I don't know. <laughs> Mike just wants to go so he can hang out with Anna Klein. Yeah. I think you're right. I bet she'd be really fun and cool to hang out with. Well, we also asked her what she's working on right now. She said that she's at home and she's wrapping up a new wind ensemble piece called Overflow. And this is going to be for the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, where she's currently the associate composer. Um, Anna, in the past, has been the composer in residence for five years at the Chicago Symphony here in the States. Right now, she's currently associate composer of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. Um, she's also going to be beginning um, a new work soon for the Knights called Shorthand. It's for solo cello and string quintet, and she's going to later arrange it for solo cello and string orchestra for the Orlando Philharmonic here in the United States, which that's pretty cool. Um, the piece is inspired by Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata for violin and piano and by Janacek's String Quartet Number no. 1, the Kreutzer Sonata, which actually is inspired by Tolstoy's Kreutzer Sonata, which in turn is inspired by Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, a nice lineage of pieces there of inspiration. You know, actually, we've been doing a lot of pieces that have been inspired by Beethoven this year. We've not only been playing a lot of his music for his 250th uh, birthday, we've also been playing pieces inspired by him. Anna just mentioned of a few pieces that are inspired by Beethoven, but we played Louis Andreessen's The Nine Symphonies of Beethoven. That was hilarious. That was so cool. Um, I loved that piece so much. It was fun. It had a rock band and everything else in it. A uh, really clever uh, take on The Nine Symphonies of Beethoven. One of my favorites is John Crilliano's Fantasia on an Ostinato, which is based on the second movement of the Seventh Symphony and all the rhythmic ostinatos in that. I definitely recommend checking that out. And hopefully, if we get to be performing again in late May, we're going to be doing Kevin Putz Inspiring Beethoven, another cool piece. So speaking of Beethoven, uh, we also asked Anna Klein if she could ask Beethoven what one question, what would it be? And I think this is really interesting. She wants to know how Beethoven discovers kernels of ideas for his compositions. Like, where, where does his inspiration come from? And I guess the question is, where does any composer's inspiration come from? I think that's always interesting to try to find out. I mean, composers can be, I think we mentioned this on last episode or the episode before that, you know, a lot of times you're commissioned to write something with very specific guidelines in mind, but, and that always helps get the process started, I'm sure, as a composer. But if you're just starting from scratch and you're wanting to write something of your own, where do you get that inspiration. I think, you know, just so everyone understands this process a little bit, the the number one example of a composer who took a kernel of something and just varied it endlessly and spun material out of it endlessly is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Bum, 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 yeah. bum. The entire first movement. Bum, 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 bum. That's that that's pretty much it right and he he turned that into this whole incredible movement and yet it was so uh, effective that every single person listening to this probably if they don't know it's beethoven 5 it doesn't matter they recognize bop 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 bomb is something familiar to them i think there's so much there to talk about too that it's exciting that that i think we're going to make our entire next podcast about how beethoven can do that and how composers can take just that little bit, just one little kernel, and make it something that really sticks with you and is interesting. Well, as always, we want to close this this episode um, with some recommended listening. We're all at home, uh, staying at home, social distancing right now, listening to a lot of great music, hopefully. 
Um, and one thing I wanted to recommend to everyone is the Keeping Score series with Michael Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Symphony. Um, they have together uh, done about uh, eight or nine, maybe 10 of these uh, episodes where they break down a major piece of orchestral music. And we've been talking about, you know, if it's your first time to the symphony, what to expect, etc. But this is a great way to get to know some of the most incredible repertoire that's ever been written for orchestra. Michael Tilson Thomas does an amazing job of showing you some, playing some examples from the piece, talking about the history of the composer and what was going on in the world at that time. They're fascinating. And the San Francisco Symphony has recently released them for free on YouTube. So make sure you check out some of those. I think you'll really enjoy them. So since today's podcast was all about making the symphony more accessible, making it, you know, a less daunting task to to come and, and hear us. Um, my recommended listening for this week is movie music, because I feel like that's a good like way to ease into uh, what we do in, in a symphony. And so I am recommending um, the music of John Williams, the, the man who has written scores to a number of um, incredible movies, uh, Indiana Jones, Superman, Star Wars. Uh, so I recommend listening to that. And really, I think what you what you may not realize is that that's an orchestra playing underneath those all of those movies. Yeah, John Williams is one of the most incredible composers for orchestra right up there with any other living or deceased composer uh, from the ages. And uh, my recommended listening for this week, since I mentioned Anna Klein was new to me and I was uh, listening to a bunch of her music, I uh, discovered a really incredible album uh, that features her music. Uh, it's the Chicago Symphony with Ricardo Moody, and uh, it's a CD of Anna Klein's music, along with another uh, really terrific young American composer, Mason Bates. And the Anna Klein piece is called Night Fairy. If you listen to Masquerade uh, and you like that, you're going to love Night Fairy. It is similarly uh, evocative and dramatic and colorful. And Mason Bates is a composer who uh, is really well known for incorporating electronic sounds into his orchestra and chamber music. And uh, this is a really, really interesting application of that. It's called Alternative Energy, and it's in four movements. And he paints these uh, sort of tableaus of different places, but not only different places in the world, different times in the world. And he takes us, uh, you know, from the recent past all the way through 2022 in Reykjavik. And it's just amazing how with the orchestra and with his electronic components, he creates these unbelievable soundscapes of those places. So check it out. So we're going to be putting together a playlist uh, for all of this. You'll find it on our website, kcsymphony.org, where you can find this podcast. And all of these pieces that we've recommended, you'll be able to access those and and listen and, you know, let us know what you think. Well, a minute ago, we were talking about earworms. And on our very next episode, we're going to be talking about what makes a tune so catchy. Why can't I get it out of my head? We'll discuss some of the most well-known melodies ever written for orchestra tunes everyone knows, even if they don't know the title or composer. That and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.